0: Then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to normal. To normal. Yeah. And I say, <laughs> I mean, like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective. That's I catch I the flu. A, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken up because he was owed major drug money by Derek Chauvin. You're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that this new—and they can't sue—you can't sue them for this Mm -hmm. without going through the Vare's court, which is a joke— And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested brand new rush through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal. Good luck with that. i tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off a thousand dollars per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here
1: found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists, particularly 95% of um, the victims of Falun Gong. Practitioners to be state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the the highest ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a a illegal sanctions, forced organ harvesting business. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Defender podcast. We are coming to you from the greatest country in the world, deep in the heart of the Lone Star State, Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Paul Aguilar. We really appreciate you guys stopping in. If you guys are watching us on YouTube, please make sure that you all subscribe and hit that bell icon so that you don't miss an episode in the future, as well as give us a thumbs up a, a thumbs up as well if you guys like the episode or a thumbs down if you don't. Um, that'll really help us out as well with the aggro with the algorithms. Um, also, if you guys are on the go and you want to catch the show, you can find us on Spotify, Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio radio at truth defender podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you guys can find us on Twitter at defender podcast, Instagram at truth defender podcast, Facebook at defender podcast. We do have a discord as well, which will be linked down below. You can find us on PayPal as well. If you guys are feeling generous and want to help us out with the hardware and software of everything, Um, You can go ahead and donate there as well. We'll be linking that as well down in the description. Um, If you guys have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, if you have any guests or topic recommendations, you can email us at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Today's guest is Mr. Larry Arnold. Larry Arnold was trained in the methodology of science with an undergraduate major in mechanical engineering. He later worked for the private sector in electrical engineering. In 1976, he founded Parascience International as director of PSI. He combines his scientific background with investigating and describing the intriguing world of Fortiana, those unconventional subjects and weird events that fail to find acceptance, let alone explanation, within the boundaries of today's science. Larry is internationally recognized for his pioneering research in spontaneous human combustion. Without further ado, Mr. Larry E. Arnold. How are you doing today, sir?
2: Hey, greetings, Paul. Delighted to be with you this Halloween day. Absolutely. If if you and your listeners are in for something spooky, macabre, bizarre, and horribly frightful, you got the topic. Absolutely. Spontaneous (laughs) human combustion is very, very strange.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before we jump into that as well, um, can you please let everybody know your background and kind of how you got started on this topic in particular?
2: Sure. Um, You gave a good introduction. Our our background is in science, mechanical and electrical engineering. And then in the the late 60s, we started to get interested in kinds of things that fell outside of the the construct of, you know, mainstream scientific thought and, and engineering pursuits. When we were in junior high school, we read a book called Stranger Than Science by Frank Edwards. And in that book, he had one chapter devoted to incredible incinerations. And it dealt specifically with one lady whose name was Mary Weezer. And he claimed um, that she had succumbed to this strange thing called spontaneous human combustion. Yeah. And we were talking talk about that subject with our teachers later in college, with our professors, and nobody knew anything about it. So when we decided to leave the engineering profession in the early 70s and turn our attention and interest to more paranormal subjects, we were called back to what we read in junior high school. We went down to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. to see if we could pull up any original research research uh, pertaining to this alleged case of Mary Hardy weazer who succumbed very unusually um, in St. Petersburg, Florida back in 1951. You know, Had Frank Edwards made up this story, or had he reported something that actually had happened. And what we discovered was that he got his facts straight. There was a um, major newspaper coverage of Mary Reeser's transition back in 1951 that seemed at the time to be incredibly bizarre and unusual. Uh, captivated our interest further, we thought we'd spend a couple of weeks to see if we could find any other cases that were like Mary Reeser's or whether this is a one-off or a that, albeit very strange, did have a prosaic conventional explanation. What happened was that that few weeks of research turned into four plus decades in a lifelong pursuit of <laughs> tracking down weird stuff, yeah. particularly unusual pyro phenomena. It's been quite an adventure. Right, right.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you even have a book out as well. Um, can you find? Can you let everybody know where they can actually find the book?
2: Um, the book is available through Amazon. The book is Ablaze, the Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion." Right. Um, you can also go to our website, parascience.com and email us at shchappens at gmail. Um, if you, if um, at the end of this discussion with your listeners, they, they want to know more information about this amazing, bizarre subject, um, the book is is regarded as the definitive research project on the topic. Um, email us, and it's a benefit to your listeners, an um, incentive to get the book and learn more about it. Uh, through the end of 2020, we'll offer it to anyone who subscribes or, or requests the book uh, through your program, Paul. Uh, first edition, signed copy, we'll sell it and ship it for $10. That's an amazing value. Process awesome. on Amazon for 24 95
1: yeah, Absolutely. We really appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, everybody, I um, actually have ordered a copy, so I'm waiting for it off of, off of Amazon as well. So, I'm going to be reading that as well. Um, so, I got that on the way. Um, but, absolutely, we're going to be linking. The website that's parascience.com as well that'll be down in the footnotes of this episode if you guys are watching us on youtube you can find it there um, also if you guys are watching or if you have you actually listening to us on spotify or any of those um, you might want to get to youtube and actually watch the video because we're going to be showing some pictures of like actual cases as well um, that you guys would want to or probably have to look at you know to kind of understand what's going on as well um, But yeah, if you guys are listening to us, um, please actually jump over to the YouTube channel and watch this when it becomes a video. I'll have this out tomorrow, which will be Halloween um, day. I'll have it out maybe about noon um, on Halloween day for everybody to have for the night. So um, you guys can listen to that as well. Um, But Yeah, I guess the first thing we'll go ahead and do is actually get an explanation or a definition of what spontaneous human combustion is.
2: That's an excellent place to start because we always like people to know exactly what's being discussed, so there's no ambiguity or uncertainty about this. This is how we define the subject. Spontaneous human combustion is the process, the phenomenon, whereby a person's body will begin to blister, smoke, or otherwise burn in the absence of a known, identifiable, external burn agent or heat source. So, people burn up all the time. in, in America. Sadly, about 2,500 to 3,000 people a year succumb to fire fatality injuries, mm. most often drop cigarette. Um, perhaps it's a murder arson case where an accelerant is used on the victim's body to, to you know, exacerbate the, the combustion of the body. Those are sad cases, but they're not unusual. They're not mysterious. What history has defined as spontaneous human combustion, or what we prefer to call it now as sudden human cremation, we still keep the acronym SHC, okay. is defined historically where the body is almost wholly incinerated to powder. And that's what characterizes SHC in the historical record. That's the concept of spontaneous human combustion or sudden human cremation. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to add something in there. Yeah. Fire. Burn injuries can be caused by chemical burns, um, exposure to open flame combustion. It can be caused by contact or or near proximity to uh, a radiant heat source. Burns can be caused by electrical injuries, lightning, for example, of course, and also by radiation. Those are the five categories that fire science will recognize as Capable of producing a burn injury to the human body. If you can rule out those that are fire scene, then by default you have to look at something that's unconventional. And if the body is wholly incinerated, as are the cases that we're going to be sharing with the audience tonight, Paul, then by definition and by default, and with an open mind, one needs to consider the probability, at least if not the possibility, of spontaneous human combustion.
1: Right. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's so like in preparation for this as well i've everybody that i had seen that had done any kind of investigation work or even looked at the topic this topic um has this kind of i guess idea that it's somehow not real so like everybody that i had seen they they're always like well maybe they fell asleep with a cigarette in their hand or they got struck by lightning or just some kind of crazy crazy idea like why is it is it because there's just not enough evidence to kind of really pinpoint why it happens that, you know, all these people say things like this? That's a wonderful
2: question. And it's one that we pondered for decades now. When we began our research, the, the data that we've accumulated in those 40 years of researching this phenomenon did not exist. There were one or two cases. Um, when we began our research, Mary Reeser's claiming fatality was the best known case. So there wasn't a lot of data to work with. And because these fire scenes are so bizarre and so atypical of what professional firefighters and arson investigators is, expect to find when the cultural fire scene. It raises so many questions. It poses such an intense conundrum to them that for many people we've discovered they'd rather not think about it. They'd rather decide in their mind that mm, maybe we can just shovel it under the rug, so to speak, the ashes. And, and call it just a third-degree burn. Um, can't do that anymore. Right. If you have an open mind and you really want to understand one of these amazing fire scenes that we've documented over the years, you have to consider something else. Um, if, you, if, if your mindset is so locked into xenophobia or that I'm an expert, and I know everything there is to know about fire, and we've had professional firefighters say that to our sure. face, then you're acknowledging your ignorance of the process of combustion, right. whether it's human combustion or just combustion in general. There's a lot yet that science, fire science and physics in particular, does not yet understand about the phenomenon, the behavior, the nature of combustion and fire itself. So when human between spontaneous and combustion, and you've just set off a lot of people who don't want to deal with the concept because it raises so many new questions and tests what they think they know about fire science. And that's what we found ourselves over the years. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, when you speak about firefighters, I actually have a best friend of mine since since I was a kid. Uh, He actually had a fireman down in Harlingen, Texas. Um, So when I had brought up the topic... Um, the other evening that you were going to be coming on, he was just like, I didn't even, that he had heard of it, but he just never thought that it was a real thing. Yeah. So I was like, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to see, right? But um, just the fact that he's actually a fireman, he's actually heard of it, obviously, but he just, I guess he had just never seen anything of the sort, like in real life. And he just thought that it was just kind of a made up thing. It's, it's just kind of odd. So, I mean, how, I guess from, we can think of it like a span from 2000 until now. How many cases do you think get reported every year that actually fit the criteria of SHC and not something along the lines of like them falling asleep with a cigarette in their hand or, you know, things like that. Like what are the numbers that we're looking at? Cause I'm, I'm, I would guess that it's not, it doesn't happen every year, like all the time, obviously it doesn't happen too often, but you know, what are kind of like the numbers that we'll be looking at?
2: We're going to answer the question this way. Um, It appears from our research that the phenomenon is somewhat cyclical. We get more cases in certain years. A lot of years will go by, when we can't find any cases that fit the concept of spontaneous human combustion. Going back to the 1500s to date, we've um, cataloged about 500 cases that fit the concept that seem to meet the definition of sudden human cremation. Given how many cases there were known to the public when we began our research back in the early 70s, that's a huge number. That's a big increase. Right. But given how many humans were alive in those several centuries, you know, the odds of this happening to any particular individual are incredibly small. And we, we stress this in all our appearances. This is an extraordinarily rare event. And that's one reason it's so easy for mainstream fire science to dismiss it. We're delighted that your colleague has at least heard about it and seems to be willing to have an open enough mind to think that it's possibility. When we um, one of the cases we're going to be discussing with you tonight happened in Philadelphia, and after we met with the fire photographer and the fire marshal and the fire chief and the assistant fire chief involved in that case, um, we drove. Um, Couple miles down the road to Philadelphia center city Philly where we had some other cases that over the years had alleged occurred within the city limits and we showed up um, and met with a senior fire instructor that day and said we have these names these dates and could you pull please pull the fire files for us we'd like to investigate them he said well I can't do that and our first thought was well obviously why he said you know, we're thinking, did they move their records? This was a brand new firehouse in Philadelphia. Maybe they moved their records off-site somewhere else. We'll go there. Right. He said, no, what you're asking about doesn't exist. So therefore, I can't have any records for you to look at. <laughs> and we put some of the photographs that were going to be, going, that we're going to be shared with you tonight, the cases, on his desk. And we said, look, you're the professional firefighter. You're the investigator. You're the fire scene. What would you do if you got called out to a fire call? and you walked into one of these fire scenes. How would you handle it? What would you do? Explain it to us, we're here to learn. Right. His response was this, we shall never forget it. Quote, unquote, I'd go out, I'd get drunk, and I'd forget about it. At which point we were told to pack up our stuff and he escorted us to the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's that's the mindset that we've encountered um, many times in the years that we've been in, to investigate this phenomenon. On the other side, converse to that, fortunately, we do meet with fire professionals who have either had firsthand experience at these remarkable fire scenes, or they have a mind that is sufficiently open and curious that they're willing to look at the evidence and say, wow, this is something we truly do do not understand. I want to know more. That's the mindset that we need, that all of us need in dealing with all kinds of paranormal phenomena that happen day after day, year after year, century after century. Right.
1: And I can't imagine, I mean, obviously I'm not them, so I wouldn't know, I've never held any kind of position within the fire, you know, like I'm, I've never been a fireman or anything like that, but especially at, at the top levels. But I don't understand why they would feel like they would need to, I don't know, not investigate it. I mean, could it just be lack of interest or they're just lazy or they just don't want to open a whole another can of worms? Or, I mean, you would think that they would want to know, like, what exactly is going on i just i just can't see like why why wouldn't you want to do anything of the sort like why would you want to keep it secret i mean it's not going to affect them in any kind of way i wouldn't think it's just it's just odd that they just wouldn't want to know anything about it or is it i guess it just doesn't happen as frequently so it's just not like a big issue but um it's just mind-boggling in that way it's weird (laughs)
2: It's bumfuddling to us too. It perplexes us. it frustrates us at times. you know we're, we're here to document the cases and then to try to understand how this phenomenon happens, is there a single mechanism, a single set of factors that have to be involved in all the cases? In which case, because people die from this phenomenon, you know, can we do something to safeguard lives in the future? Is there some scientific insight that all of us can gain by studying these cases and trying to understand them further? Um, If questions remain after you study and look at the evidence that we've amassed, we're perfectly happy with that. Believe us, there's a lot of questions that we still have about this phenomenon, a whole lot of questions. Conversely, though, if you just want to walk it out and say this is too weird, this is too disturbing this is so disconcerting that I just can't mentally cope with it. That's okay too. But then don't lie about it. Just acknowledge that this is something I just can't cope with and let somebody else deal with it. But we have dealt with cases where literally the evidence has been swept under the rug. We have dealt with big-name professional scientists in this field of fire science forensics who have falsified data who have lied about their experiments to explain this phenomenon away. And that's a whole nother ball game.
1: Right. Yeah. And I guess I should rephrase that. So, um, you know, I would say the guys that are in the firehouse on the ground doing the, you know, doing the work, I'm not saying that they wouldn't want to cover anything up. Like, like you said, the scientists and the people at the top, maybe they just, those are the ones that just don't want to have anything to do with it. But you know, I'm I'm sure. Obviously, all the guys that's like on the ground, they would want you know some kind of answer as well. So we're not we're not trying to shade, throw any kind of shade at those guys. Um, but like you said, it's just those other people at, at the very very top that just are trying to keep some kind of. I mean, they just wouldn't. If it was something like aliens or something, that's different, right? It's something you would want to keep secret or whatever. But like this is just something that affects people and it's real and it's not coming from anywhere that we can see. It's not like the government's not going out and zapping people that we know of. Um, but like it's just something that's so mysterious and it's just happening on its own.
2: Like why would you want to just cover it up? <laughs> all, all excellent points. And, be, and because it is so infrequent and because it has largely been regarded in the fire service community and across medicine and, and, and all aspects of science that deal with human biology, um, as as a superstition, as nonsense, as something that's made up. When first responders get to one of these remarkable fire scenes, they're they're ill-prepared to really grasp what they're looking at. And sometimes they've told us that they just, their their job is to put out a fire. And if it's not a fire to put out, they pack up their hoses and go back to the firehouse and wait for the next alarm to come in. Um, And that's how they view their job and that's perfectly fine. Um, We met once with not only a fire chief, but also the owner of a crematorium. I only know one person who has those twin careers wedded together. And obviously, we're really interested in meeting with him um, because he has expertise in what's involved in trying to cremate a human body under scientific conditions, as well as being a professional firefighter. And when we met with him, sat down and shared with him our research, he was astounded. He had no idea that a human body could burn up to the extent that the cases we were demonstrate and show with your audience tonight can do right. so on their own in the environment in which they incinerate. And this is a gentleman who, as we said, cremated bodies for a living. And as a professional firefighter, he did not know that these cases could occur outside of a retort, outside of a crematorium.
1: Yeah, that is crazy that someone would hold those two professions back to back like that. Um but yeah it's it's certainly it's an odd thing. Obviously it's I mean I've I've heard of these kinds of cases since you know since I was a child. It just never it was just never like enough information out there to actually look into, you know, things like that. And there's Yeah, it's crazy. But I mean, we're going to go ahead and jump into some of the cases here so we can do that so everybody can get a good look at it. But like I said, if you guys are listening on Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you guys are listening to us on, you need to jump on the video um, on YouTube so that you can see these as well. Obviously, Um, you're going to want to have some kind of context as well. So go ahead and do that for us there and you can see what's going on. Um, So we're going to go ahead and jump on in here. Let's take a look. All right. So we're looking here. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and if you guys are, can you see the screen there, sir?
2: We can. Yep. That's the book, Ablaze the Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion. Um, Details chapter by chapter, many of the cases that we're going to be sharing with your audience tonight, Paul. A lot of the cases never appeared in print anywhere prior to the publication of our book. It's several hundred pages in length. It's got some photographs in it, not as many as we would have liked, but initially the publisher didn't want to print any photographs and we said, Mm -hmm. how can you do a book on this subject without photographs? So they are there. Um, And we guarantee that if you get this book, um, you're going to be learning things about fire and about human biology that you did not know prior to reading this book. There is unique firsthand information in this book that was only obtained because we travel the world looking for these cases and talking to the first responders who've had intimate firsthand knowledge of these amazing fire scenes. Right. right. Awesome.
1: Okay. Yeah. So like, like you mentioned you guys can find that on Amazon if you're looking for it and you can also go to his website. Um, he's gracious enough to give us that offer as well. Um, if you guys can get that book sent out to you guys. Um, so go ahead and do that as well. Um, we'll have the website linked down below as well as the Amazon link as well. Uh in the show notes for you guys. So we'll go ahead and jump on to the first one here.
2: Let's take a look. Okay, this is a great place to start. This is what a normal severe human fire fatality looks like. You can make out the the contours of, of the victim to the right side of the photo is the victim's head, then the raised part is his shoulders going down, to, right to left would be his torso, and the legs on the left side of the picture. This is a whole house structure fire, and yet, even though the building burned down around the victim, providing a tremendous amount of fuel loading, the victim's body could be picked up, transported from the fire scene to a morgue for autopsy. Um, Some of the debunkers of spontaneous human combustion have written and have told us face-to-face that there is no case known in which internal organs of the body are destroyed more completely than our outer portions of the body. That particular quote is from Mark Venecki, a a renowned forensics biologist. There's another investigator who, or another scientist who has studied um, the effects of fire in the human body, which is toponymy, and she says that Even in the most severe burn cases, she could find evidence of stab wounds or gunshot wounds, you know, if this was a murder arson event. In a case like is on the screen right now, you could certainly do that. You could find evidence of gunshot or blunt trauma force injury or stab wounds because there's a significant portion of the body left. Mm -hmm. Keep this in mind as a conventional fire fatality and contrast that with some of the cases that we and Paul are going to be showing to you soon.
1: It's crazy it's definitely it looks pretty brutal <laughs> so you, you <laughs> yeah. didn't mention that the entire house yeah.
2: actually burned down yeah as well? this, this is a structure of fire okay. and firefighters this is this is part of their, their macabre gallows history but um a a, a a person burned to this extent they call often a crispy critter and this is actually a fourth degree burden when we began our research back in the um our, our interest in fire back in the 60s there were three Kate. Three categories of burn injury for second and third. First degree burn is, is simply reddening of the skin. Second degree burn is blistering of the skin and at that time third degree burn was anything more s- severe than a blister. Mm. There is now a third and fourth degree burn injuries where third degree burn is damage to uh, the skin and the nerve endings beneath the skin. Fourth degree is currently the most severe burn injury categorized by mainstream fire science and this picture would demonstrate a fourth degree burn injury where the burning is deep into the muscle tissue. But again, the body can be picked up, transported to a morgue, autopsy before internment.
1: Yeah, you would think that for something that would burn so hot and so fierce for it to actually burn the structure around, that there wouldn't be anything left of the body. But yeah, that's crazy <laughs> that it's actually still there. Yeah, wow. Well,
2: jump on to this next one here. Okay, this is Mary Reeser. This is the case that got us interested in the subject under discussion. And synchronistically or coincidentally, depending on one's state of mind, uh, the remains of Mrs. Reeser, who grew up in Pennsylvania, which is our home state, her remains are buried in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, beneath that red granite monolith uh, about 12 miles from our office here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Though a native of Pennsylvania, she had recently moved in in, um, July of 1951 down to St. Petersburg, Florida, apparently expecting to retire there, but she didn't like the heat and humidity. So she was preparing to come back to her home state of Pennsylvania. She came back, but in a way no one would have expected it to happen. Back in July of 51, she was living in this building at um, 1200 Cherry Street Northeast in St. Pete, Florida. Her story begins or ends, actually it doesn't end, it's still ongoing, mm-hmm. but uh, for the discussion under, under review right now, Mary Hardy Reeser, on the morning, well, she was seen the evening of July 1st, 1951, about 9 p.m. Um, by her son, who was a physician, and apparently good health. She was going to take two second all sleeping tablets to help her go to sleep. Um, She was living alone in an apartment building at the time. The following morning, um, Western Union telegram messenger arrived with a telegram to be given to Mrs. Weezer, probably um, giving her the specifics that she was looking forward to take her back to Pennsylvania. No one responded to Mrs. Weezer's apartment knocks on her door. The telegram messenger went down to the other end of the hallway to deliver the telegram to Pansy Carpenter, who was Mrs. Reese's landlady. Pansy went back down the hallway to knock on the door. Uh, without an answer, she went to just simply open the door and discovered to her astonishment that the door handle door to Mrs. Reese's apartment was hot to the touch. She screamed. Two painters who were walking across the street heard her screams, they rushed over, broke down the door, and when they went inside Mrs. Reese's apartment, they found something that has been described as macabre beyond belief. And we can show that here as well. Mrs. Weezer's remains, the chair in which she was known to be seated last, and an end table beside the chair, were all consumed to a few pounds of ashen rubble. The remains of Mrs. Weezer's body consisted of one foot, the satin slipper that desconsed that foot, a few pieces of calcined vertebrae, a piece of liver, and the dark ovoid mass at the top of the photo was described by first responders at the time as her head that had shrunk in size, variously described as the size of a teacup to a fruit baseball. Mm. There was no other significant fire damage in the apartment whatsoever. The investigators started using words like bizarre, macabre, weird. These are not adjectives that normal fire investigators would use at a normal fire fatality scene. Certainly, this scene looked very different than the one that we showed you first, in which the entire structure had burned down around the victim. The damage in Mrs. Reese's apartment was limited to a circle of about three feet in diameter. Stacks of newspapers outside that diameter were intact. Bedding nearby was unsinged by the fire. There was enough heat generated in the apartment to melt candles so that when the First responders arrived. They noticed that the wax tapers had melted through, realistically, almost dagger-like, dolly-like, over their candle holders. To our knowledge, there was no fire damage to the ceiling above Mrs. Reiser's chair. First responders also said that the aroma in the apartment was quite sweet, to get as atypical for a fatal human fire scene. Uh, firefighters have repeatedly told us that they, when they respond to a fire fatality, the odor of burned human flesh is quite noxious. Right. That was not the case here. It so happened that back in 1951, vacationing in St. Pete at the time was Dr. Walter Marion Crogman. He was a renowned forensic anthropologist. who had worked with Elliot Ness back in the 30s and had made part of his career the study of the effects of fire on the human body. Dr. Krogman vacationing in St. Pete at the time got wind of the fire, took a personal interest in it. We've had the privilege of meeting with Dr. Krogman, and we discussed this and many other cases with him. We want to share with your listeners exactly what Mr. Krogman had to say about this fire that he initially found so bizarre and so atypical and so mysterious. In fact, he called her the cinder woman. And said the case was macabre beyond belief. What perplexed Dr. Crogman, and we remember he had expertise in the effects of fire in the human body, he found these seven conditions problematic in the case of Mrs. Mrs. Reeser. One, he said, was the extent of reduction to the body. Mrs. Reeser on the night of July first weighed about one hundred and seventy-five pounds. The morning of July second, she and the chair and the end table combined. Weight about eight pounds, significant destruction of mass. It's a diet that Jenny Craig would never recommend to her clients. That's a tremendously <laughs> significant weight loss. Another point that so mystified Krogman at the time was the apparent localization of what he thought had to be tremendous heat. In a crematorium, bodies are exposed to about 22 to 2400 degrees Fahrenheit, for 60 to 90 minutes. And then the temperature in the retort is reduced to 17 to 1800 degrees for another hour, hour and a half, depending on the weight mass of the body. Yet what comes out of a retort oven at that extreme temperature for that duration of time is not powder, but bone fragments, which are then put on a cremulator, fancy name for a grinder, Um, so that the ashes that are eventually given to the next opinion and urn are actually mechanically ground down to get that fine powder. That does not happen inside a retort by itself. And yet in the case of Mrs. Reeser, that seemed to be the case. Crematorium operators spend a lot of money on a lot of equipment to accomplish that goal. Um, $100,000 would put you in business as, as a crematorium operator. But to do an individual cremation requires about 40 or 50 gallons of fuel oil or a couple million cubic feet of natural gas. And we're giving you the time parameters and the heat range for a normal cremation. In the case of Mrs. Reeser, Dr. Krogman had to fall back on his experimentation of what kind of heat and duration was required to burn a cadaver to the extent that Mrs. Reeser was burned. And he wrote... And he told us that in his experiments, to replicate the amount of destruction that Mrs. Reeser presented to him and to the first responders would require cremation and a retort at 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 hours uninterrupted. That's extraordinary, given the fact that most house structures rarely exceed 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit. So rock that comes out of a volcano molten lava That happens at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're talking extraordinary heat here. And yet everything and almost everything in Mrs. Reeser's apartment, aside from her body, her chair, and the end table, was intact. This was not a whole structure fire that Mrs. Reeser died in. Other things perplexed Dr. Krogman. He said it was the time element that was available. As we said in his experiments, to burn a body to that extent required for him 12 hours in a crematorium. The most time allowable for Mrs. Reeser to burn to the extent that she did was 11 hours, but more likely it's much less than that. Um, a clock in her apartment had stopped at 4.20 a.m. Mrs. Carpenter was awakened about at the same time as something that at the time that she was not able to identify. Um, so we suspect that the incident and in Mrs. Reeser began about 4.20 p.m. And again, her body was discovered about 8 a.m. that morning. So. Three and a half hours is probably the maximum time allowable. Contrasted that with the 12 hours that Dr. Krogman required in, in his retort. There was also, to Krogman's amazement, the absence of the noxious odor that we've already talked about. In Mrs. Reese's case, as we said, there was a sweet smell present to the first responders. There was that dandelion, shrunken skull. This should not happen in a high heat fire. If the res- first responders identified that, item of her remains accurately as a skull. Human skulls in high heat don't shrink. They explode. Right. So this is not a problem. But we have found since, since we began interested in this subject, we've found two other cases where the skull has shrunken dramatically in size. So as bizarre as that sounds, and frankly, it's extraordinarily weird. Um, that's not a, this is not a unique situation with Mrs. Weezer. Dr. Krogman said that this this whole fire scene to him was an affront to logic and and to common sense. It just belied everything that he thought he knew about the effects of fire to the human body. And he did admit that he knew of some other cases that historically sounded similar to this, maybe a few of them. He simply did not realize at the time just how many similar cases there were in history similar to Mrs. Weezer. In the end, Krogman was faced with the conundrum of how to explain Mrs. Weezer's fire scene he said, frankly, in his years of working as a forensic anthropologist, he thought it wise to declare that nothing is impossible regardless of how bizarre the facts are. Improbable, yes, but not impossible. So Mrs. Reason for, for Dr. Crogman back in 1951 was definitely improbable, but not impossible. And this is the case that launched us on a career
1: it's 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 definitely amazing that, it's, that for her to get down to that it would require such heat you would think that the entire building would have came down as well with everything in the room it's almost kind of like a flash like a like, like a flash burning of some kind that just kind of hit and then you know she was she was just gone along with the chair and everything else but uh, it's it's definitely it,
2: it, it leaves you scratching your head <laughs> if, if this if this is a conventional oxidation type fire combustion, we we should be seeing a lot of heat damage, we should have seen the entire structure burn down around her, and we don't see that. Um, We should not be experiencing reports of the sweet aroma present at this fire scene. There's just a whole lot of stuff about the Giza case that, in our our view, certainly doesn't make any sense at all within the construct of conventional fire science.
1: It makes even less sense, even far less sense to me. So, delighted <laughs> to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's jump on to this next one here. Let's take a look.
2: Uh, this, this, is, this is our favorite because this is what convinced us that we weren't deluding ourselves. We weren't jumping off the deep end. Right. Um, oh, by the way, we've, one of our critics is called us a mystery monger. And mystery mongers don't have to do a lot of work to Create a mystery, you know. Just make up some facts and throw it out there. And in this day of fake news, right. um, it's easy to just to make up stuff and throw it out there and see what sticks to the wall. This is our this is our file on the research case. Mm. It's over an inch thick. Right. If we're a mystery monger, we're not going to go to this extent to make up to confab something that doesn't exist. To write it off as fiction. This contains photographs, correspondence case histories, we've spoken to one of the two firemen who shoveled her ashes out of her apartment. We spoke to the St. Pete police officer whose first day on the job was to stand as security outside the greezer apartment to make sure that the, 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 the fire scene itself was not contaminated. Both gentlemen told us that they had no clue and their colleagues had no clue at the time as to how to explain what happened to Mrs. weiser And in the case of Nelson Aiders, one of the two firefighters who shoveled her ashes out of the apartment, um, he told us that he believes the best explanation for, de- for her demise is simply spontaneous human combustion. Now, Dr. Bentley, this is a case that we discovered, documented for the first time and brought to the public's awareness back in 1976. This is the opening two chapters in our Book Ablaze that deal, deals with Dr. Medby's baffling burning. This is the case that convinced us, as we said, that we were really on this, on, onto a new mystery. This is no longer superstition. This is no longer going to be written off as fictional fabrication. There is really something going on here. Right. In December of 1966, Dr. Bentley was a 92-year-old retired family physician living in Cowder's Port in Potter County, which is in the northern tier of our home state of Pennsylvania. He was known to be alive the, the night of December 4th, 1966. His nurse had come and checked on him and his daughter-in-law, whom we later had the privilege to interview, confirmed that normally Dr. Bentley would have been up and about uh, as late as perhaps 11 p.m. or midnight, any night of the week. When he was last seen, he appeared to be in very good health. He was partially invalidic. He had broken in his hip many years before, and he used an aluminum walker to help him move about his two room apartment in this house, which is at 403 North Main Street in Countersport. It's still standing, but in better condition now. But this is what the house looked like in 1966. It was then a tinderbox of an environment. If there would have been any kind of significant fire inside this structure, the whole building should have torched itself to the ground. This picture was taken after the fire scene was discovered inside, so clearly the house withstood whatever happened inside. Here's where the story gets really, really interesting. Monday morning, December 5, 1966, shortly after 8 a.m., Don Gosnell, a local meter reader for the gas company in Carisport, walked to Dr. Bentley's front door, opened it, walked down the hallway to read the gas meter in Dr. Bentley's basement. Walking down the hallway, Don Gosnell noticed a sweet smell and a bluish-gray haze in the hallway. Didn't think a whole lot of it, went down to the basement, read the gas meter, and then as he was preparing to go back upstairs, he noticed in a corner of the earthen floor in the basement was a pile of ashes about 14 inches in diameter, about five inches in height. Mr. Gosnell was not only a meter reader, but a volunteer firefighter in countersport. He walked over to the pile of ashes, kicked it with his work boot, looked overhead, and above the pile of ashes in the basement ceiling, he noticed a hole in the basement ceiling about two and a half, three feet in diameter with some cherry red embers on its perimeter. Mr. Gauss now told us when we interviewed him later about the case that he thought first that something had obviously burned overnight in Dr. Bentley's home or burned recently, but he was curious as to why the fire department in itself did not get a fire call to come out and respond. Went back upstairs and before leaving the apartment to go to the next house to read its gas meter, he knocked on Dr. Bentley's door to make sure the 92-year-old physician was you know, okay in the morning. Did not get a response. Being in countersport in 1966, people didn't lock the doors. So Mr. Gosnell opened the door to Dr. Bentley's two-room apartment to peer in to make sure Dr. Bentley was okay. Didn't see old, the old doc. Walked through the living room, sitting room, and peered into the other room of Dr. Bentley's apartment, which was Dr. Bentley's bathroom. And when you pull up the next image, this is what Don Gosnell discovered the morning of December 5, 1966. Gosnell told us that first he thought he was looking at the leg of a mannequin until he went down and looked at it closer and realized that that half of one leg was a human leg and that the ashes in the floor below that he had kicked just moments before were the ashes of a body, specifically Dr. Bentley. He told us he wished he had never seen this scene. He went out of the house down the street and into the gas company's office yelling the understatement of 1966. Dr. Bentley's burnt up. Indeed, Dr. Bentley had burned up, but more accurately you would submit he did not burn up, he burned down. He burned down through the linoleum flooring. He burned down through the wooden substrate below the linoleum. He almost burned through three oaken beams below the floor, and his ashes fell to the basement below. And yet, Given what we said to you, Dr. Crogman determined had to be necessary in a crematorium at 3000 degrees for 12 hours to completely incinerate bone to dust. There was no fire damage to the ceiling above where Dr. Bentley augured his way through the bathroom floor. We were at this fire scene. We were confirmed that there was no fire damage above the point of incineration. Furthermore, You will see some blackening on the edge of Dr. Bentley's bathtub. Soot particles, carbonization. The heat was so minimal that the paint on the bathtub did not blister. This is not baked enamel. This was paint. We chipped paint off that bathtub. The paint, though blackened, did not blister. Hmm. Dr. Bentley's aluminum walker that he used to locomote back and forth in his two-room apartment did not melt. If you look very closely at two of the legs in the aluminum walker, the rubber tips are still on those two legs. They are intact. As Don Gosnell told us, there was a sweet redolent, perfume-like aroma at this fire scene. Again, atypical of human fatality fire scenes. When word got out and colleagues of Don Gosnell arrived to the fire scene to investigate themselves, he warned them not to go in. He said, you do not want to see this fire scene. Please don't go in. It's too disturbing. As he described what he saw, they did not believe him. They had to go in and see for themselves. We have multiple eyewitnesses to this fire scene. This was never fully reported. In fact, if we reach over here, I don't know if you can get it. Um, here we go. This is a copy of the front page of the Potter Enterprise for two days later, Wednesday morning, describing headline on the front page the untimely death of the hometown physician, Dr. Bentley. The article is really interesting for a number of reasons. Skeptics of Spondcom say that Dr. Bentley, known to be a pipe smoker, must have lit a match and dropped it on his lap in his living room or dropped the pipe on his lap and caught his clothing afire. And that was the external source for the combustion that consumed his body. Lots of problems with that. Let us explain why we see the problems as for what they are. The newspaper report says that, and we got this from the, from the editor himself who, who was at this fire scene, he noticed that Dr. Bentley's pipe was placed in its holder on a stand next to the chair where Dr. Bentley spent most of his life. If Dr. Bentley had carelessly dropped his lit pipe on his lap and ignited his night robe, it's incomprehensible to us almost total destruction of the body. And yet if you look at what was reported officially on the record, there are even more questions that are raised about how Dr. Bentley died and how how it was reported. And this is another problem that we find in in trying to research these cases. Quite often, the medical records, the accounts attributing or describing these fire scenes, are themselves inaccurate and not trustworthy. In Pennsylvania, a death certificate is by law a document that is obligated to legally report the accurate details of a person's death. We have Dr. Bentley's death certificate. It says Dr. Bentley died by asphyxiation. Hmm. Not possible to determine because there was no trachea, no lungs left to autopsy. You cannot make that decision honestly. The death certificate also says concurrent to death by asphyxiation, there was a tended 90% burning of the body. Also not true. As the deputy coroner, John Deck, told us, he would characterize this more like 99% burning of the body. We'll accept that. Ah. We wish wish an accurate, honest autopsy would have been conducted. Clearly, it was not. Dr. Bentley, in our view, is the quintessential poster boy for the historical concept of spontaneous human combustion or as we prefer to call it now, sudden human cremation. Very localized fire of apparent intense heat, and yet beyond that two-and-a-half-by-three-foot hole in Dr. Bentley's bathroom floor, no evidence of the the expected heat whatsoever. There were just so many conundrums so many paradoxes about this fire scene, that people who see it are rather left scratching their heads as happened with one senior fire instructor down at the National Fire Academy in Emmonsburg, Maryland when we showed him this photograph, or you are confronted as we have been confronted with naysayers who just refuse to accept this as a true historical document or something that they don't want to accept as possible. We have been told that this photograph is photoshopped. Well, it was taken in 1966 before Photoshop even existed. Right. We know the provenance of this photograph. We're at stake every penny we have in our bank account and every penny that's in the national debt, which is huge, <laughs> that this is a real, historic, bona fide photograph depicting a real historic event unaltered. This is what Don Gosnell saw when he entered Dr. Bentley's apartment the morning of December five, nineteen sixty six. This is not photoshopped, and it is not a hoax, and it is not fake photography. All those charges have been made of this photograph; none of them are true. Right.
1: Oof, no, it's definitely odd. I mean, like you mentioned, nothing else burned. I mean, the walker's still there. I mean, besides the hole in the floor, it's. Everything else is still there. I mean,
2: every everything is pretty much there except ninety nine percent of Doctor Bentley's body. This yeah. is his legacy to the world of medicine and to the world of fire science today. That's rough. Yeah. <laughs> it, is rough. <laughs> it is rough. It is rough. It's 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 no wonder if if you if you've been if you've been a firefighter. And you've been to a few fire fatalities. You don't forget them. They're very emotionally disturbing fire scenes to begin with. But as we, as, as, the first photograph showed and as we've tried to explain, you expect to see a whole body, or pretty much a whole body, that can be picked up, removed from the premises, and if need be, autopsy. Right. There's nothing here to autopsy. Truly, there isn't.
1: Yeah, I mean the only thing that I thought of at, the, at that time was he probably went to the restroom for something, and then he just caught a blaze, and then he fell over. It, that's
2: what it looks like, right? But it's that's it, that's, that's our interpretation too. We we, we think we believe that Doctor Benley was got up from his chair in his in his sitting room, and was responding to a call of nature, and just didn't quite get the task completed. Yeah, he's walking to the toilet, and this is where he met his flaming fate rough way to go
1: (laughs) you just hope that for them it's instant i mean they don't have to like lay there and feel every every you know every second of it until they're gone but
2: yeah uh, this this may be this is probably why some some fire professionals find this such a horrific consideration um they know that contact with an open fire source can be very painful yeah. And people who have survived, you know, stove accidents or have scalded themselves with a when you put them a pot of hot water, yeah, burn injuries are very difficult to live through. Um, they hurt. Reconstructive skin grafting itself is very painful and time consuming and not at all pleasant. So the initial response to a fire scene like this is, "My God, this guy must have suffered immeasurably. How awful it must have been." Our belief is that these episodes for Dr. Bentley, for Mrs. Reeser, and for some of the other cases we're going to be describing soon, are so instantaneous that either there is no time for pain signals to be to be transmitted to the brain, or the process involves something that doesn't even involve the nervous system per se, so that whatever is happening here, and we have this from other sources, word or not, because there are survivors of partial spontaneous human combustion, they don't experience anything remotely akin to the kind of pain that one ex- would expect at a fire scene like this. So, um, to allow your concerns, Paul, uh, whatever took down Dr. Bentley, we'll, we'll put some money on the table that it was not painful to him. I mean
1: that, and then the fact that they, you know, you don't—they don't have any kind of reports of anybody screaming or from within, you know, inside you would think you catch on fire the first thing you're just like holy i'm on fire you know yeah uh-huh. but nothing you know they don't hear anything you know stuff like that it's you would hope that it's just instant and, and they're just gone but whew, yeah it's still just to think about it <laughs> yeah so we'll jump said, on it it's, it's halloween
2: this is something that yeah I know. this is a good subject for any ha- halloween discussion Absolutely. It, it's bizarre it's weird it's scary it's frightening it's gruesome and yet at the same time at least for us and a, and a few of our colleagues it is so damnably fascinating you know how does this happen yeah definitely well we're going to jump into this next
1: one here let's take a look